Well, amen. Good morning, Sailorville. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. And that's what we are if we have a relationship with Jesus. It's not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know when he's revealed we'll be like him. We'll see him as he is. And everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure, right? So how do you know if you're led of God? Can you know if you're being led of God? Is that even possible? I hear some yeses going on here. I don't know. I talk to a lot of people. They don't know if they're being led of God. Some people think they're being led of God, and I'm thinking, well, at least there's one of us. Are we being led of God? Is there a way of absolutely knowing? You know, the Bible does give us a beautiful passage of scripture many of you have memorized it's a sort of a capsulization of uh, of the will of God knowing that you're being led of God and really involves three commands and then the results that follow so you know the verse many of you trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all of your ways acknowledge him and he will, what? He'll direct, he'll make straight your paths. There it is. There's the capsulization of knowing God and his will. You've got complete trust in God. Trusting him with all of your heart. That's complete trust in God. And therein lies the problem with a number of you this morning. You can't do that. You haven't been there yet. Uh, lean not on your understanding. That's complete distrust in yourself. And that's the other part of the problem. Too many of you are trusting yourself, your own wits. And then the other one is this unashamed acknowledgement of God in every, at every opportunity, at every juncture in life. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And the results are led of God. He directs your paths, right? So there's the directive, but does the Bible give us an example a bona fide example of a person who lived out Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? And the answer is yes. And he's not even, he doesn't even have a name. He's a nameless man. Uh, undoubtedly, he has a name, but we're not told what his name is. And I think maybe that's the Spirit of God's way of saying, you and I need to find our names inserted into this passage of Scripture as we look at the story of the servant of Abraham finding a wife for Isaac, and I invite you to find Genesis chapter 24, if you would. I love this story. The mission of Abraham serving to find a bride for Isaac. My only regret is that it's so long. So I'm going to have to summarize a chunk of it, but it's in this story that my absolute favorite passage of Scripture in all of the Bible on the leading of God, the experiential leading of God in one's life is found. I've never preached this passage before, but I've always loved this verse of Scripture within it, so it's, it's exhilarating for me to be able to preach it for the first time ever. But let's, with that in mind, get into the text itself, Genesis 24. Now Abraham was old. Well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, this is the nameless one, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, 
the God of heaven, the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said, said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house, from the land of my kindred, and who swore to me and sw- uh, who spoke to me and swore to me to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you'll take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman will not, is not willing to follow you, then you're free from your oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. This is a very solemn moment, and this is a very unusual way of doing it, isn't it? I mean, Abraham takes it, tells the servant, go find it. You're going to go to the land I came from. That's 500 miles away. Don't take take one from amongst the Canaanites. And you're going to swear by this by putting your hand under my thigh. Now, I mean, when when we swear, we swear in the Bible. We put our hands on our hearts. But if you're a Hebrew, that's not what you do. If you're a Hebrew, you swear on your circumcision. That's what you do, the mark of God's covenant. And basically, Abraham here has made his servant swear by the future of the seed of Abraham that he'd find a wife for Isaac. I won't say any more than that. Don't do it now, but if you look up the English word testify and the history of that word, you'll see how solemn this oath is. That's all I'm saying. Now, I also think it's very interesting that in this time where the servant swears to do what he's going to do to find a wife for Isaac, that Abraham says, there's an angel that's going to take care of business here. Did you catch that? But the narrative never never reveals the angel. The angel never comes out in the narrative. I'm not saying he wasn't there. In fact, I can see several points in this story where the angel was involved, but we're not told. And I bring this out to you because, you know, about a decade ago, there was this huge fixation on angels. You remember that? And, uh, and God has never wanted us to be fixated on angels. But the fact that they are, as the writer of Hebrews put it, ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who shall be heirs of salvation should cause you to say, thank you, God, for angels. I mean, Jesus even said, said that our little ones have a kind of guardian angel. Their angels behold the face of the Father, he said in Matthew chapter 18. We should thank God for them. We, should be, we, we, we are somewhat mystified by it all. In fact, the angels themselves are mystified by what God's doing for you and me. But the fact of the matter, there is an angel. You can see, and you'll see as we go through the story where the angels might have been, or the angel rather, might have actually been Involved, But that said, let's, let's pick up the story in verse 10, where the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. Again, 500 miles, a 1,000-mile round trip. He's got 10 camels. They're loaded 
to the nines. And so this is an impressive entourage. Verse 11, he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of the water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Notice who he's really concerned for. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water and the daughters of of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed For your servant Isaac, by this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Do you see what's going on here? He is so, the servant is so desirous to please his master. In fact, if you read all 67 verses, there are no less than 19 references to my master, my master, my master. This is Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with what? All your heart. He's totally trusting his master and the God of his master in all of this. He's not trusting himself. The great Christian evangelist and more well-known as, uh, the, as the one who had an orphanage, George Mueller, whose stories are renowned, they're legend of how God answered prayers in his life, He wrote a little tiny thing on how to ascertain the will of God. It's worth looking up. It's only like 262 words long. You don't make a lot of money on that. People have been writing books on how to know God's will for years, and I've never seen anyone be able to improve on Mueller's uh, advice to us based on Scripture. And, And right out of the chute, he says this. He says, the first thing you need to do is get your, get your heart in such a state that it has no will of its own in regard to a given matter. And then he says nine-tenths of the issue is right there. And I would agree. It's nine-tenths of it is right there. You get your heart. You want to know God's will. The first thing you need to do is obey Proverbs 3, 5. You trust in the Lord with all of your heart. You get your own will completely out of the mess. That's why the next says, don't, you know, don't lean on your own understanding. When we intermix these things, we're in trouble. And so this servant is demonstrating that in his desire to honor his master and his master's God. And, and you can see what he does. He sort of throws out a fleece, a little bit like Gideon will later on do. He's, you know, prays to God of Abraham and says, you know, if, you know, if this is the woman, I'd like to get this matter over with quickly. Let her come out. Offer me some water. You know, Give my camels a drink? I mean, this is an amazing thing, by the way, when she asks. And by the way, the servant of Abraham, as he's praying these things, as he's, even as he makes his trip to Mesopotamia, uh, he's, not, he's not studying the Bible. The Bible, you know, was still being <laughs> recorded. Uh, but he's studying the word of God from Abraham, right? And... Uh, I was just thinking about this and how we ascertain the will of God throughout our days. By the way, Mueller also said we can never understand the will of God apart from the word of God. And that's true as well. 
I can't count the number of times, or I guess I could count them, but there are many times where I've made many decisions just based on what the Scripture alone said. That's your safest, infallible bet right there. But we don't, you know, we read our Bibles, and then we put them down, and we go about our day. We don't carry our Bibles around with us, not most of us anyway. There is an old hymn. There is a, there is a line, a special line in an old hymn that I, I love. The old hymn was written by Mary Lathbury. She was looking over Lake Chautauqua in New York, and she was writing uh, this hymn with the intention of getting you and me to love our Bibles, to ask God to help us understand our Bibles. In fact, the old hymn is called Break Thou the Bread of Life. Anybody remember that old hymn? My favorite line in the hymn is this one. Beyond the sacred page, I seek thee, Lord. I love that line. Because I think Mrs. Lathbury understood that we're not, you know, we can read the Bible, we can memorize the Bible, we want to be led of God, but we want to be led of God beyond the sacred page, right? In the normal, just goings forth and course of life. And that's what we want, don't we? We want to be led of God beyond the sacred page. And this is the reason why, I, I, this is, I love how R. Kent Hughes put it when he was refer, reflecting on this passage of Scripture. He said, there will be no miracle in the story, as we usually think of miracles. No rearrangement of molecules, no sun standing still, no healing, no river stopped up. Rather, God will bring about the acquiring of Isaac's bride through the, quote, normal events of life. The delays, the customs, the stresses, and the chance meetings, unquote. That's why I love this story. There aren't any miracles per se, unless you want to call an answer to prayer a miracle. It's not. It's an answer to prayer. And this makes it very, very practical. And please notice in verse 15, will you? Let's, let, let's, let's pick it up there in verse 15. Behold, he finished speaking. As he had finished speaking, that is when he's praying to God. As he finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her, said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my lord, and she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she... When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also. Bingo! Until they finished drinking. She quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw the water. And she drew all, for all of his camels, the man gazed at her in silence. Of course he did. This is an amazing thing she was doing to learn whether or not the Lord had prospered him on his his journey. I want you to notice some things going on here. By the way, as we, as, as we talk about the will of God, you've got this servant. He's totally dedicated to the Lord, like Proverbs 3, 5 says. He's not trusting his own understanding. He's gazing at all this. But he did pray, didn't he? He did ask this to happen. He asked God to bring a woman to offer him a drink and then to water his camels. That exactly happens. In fact, when he's done praying, there she is. Now, let me ask you a question. Did God just parachute Rebecca in right at the spot? 
No, she'd probably left half hour, hour, however long. You have providence and prayer working in conjunction here. And that's the way it always is. You don't just trust providence. because I mean, you do, we trust the Lord to do things, but we're not fatalists here. God commands us to pray. Pray about everything. And then his, his providence working in conjunction with our prayers makes it come to pass. It's a beautiful thing, and it's happening right here as an example. She shows up before the servant's done praying. God's already at work, like Isaiah 65, 24 says, I, I'm answering before you pray. Verse 16 describes Rebecca. I love that. She's very attractive. She's, she has an attractive appearance. I love the way Scripture describes its subjects over and over again. I, the guys give me a bad time. I'm always describing people. But don't let this woman's beauty deceive you. As an answer to prayer, you say, well, that's kind of weird. I mean, yeah, it was. To ask God to make this woman or cause this woman to offer to water 10 camels. 10 camels. We're not talking doggy dishes here. That's a lot of water. We got a couple of guys that walk around here on staff that carry their, their gallon jugs with them because they're proud. They're going to drink a whole gallon of water throughout the day. Good on you. One camel will drink 25 gallons of water in one drinking. They'd drink you right under the table. 25 gallons, one camel. Now, women in those days would carry jars that would carry about three gallons of water. And if you'll notice in verse 16, it says, she went down into the well. This wasn't a pulley system. And then she went back up again, over and over and over and over again. If you do the math, she'd have had to do it over 80 times to water those camels. This woman was not, she was beauty and the beast. <laughs> now, I don't think that the purpose of this passage is for those of you that are not married to use this as a litmus test for finding a wife, okay? But if you go to Proverbs 31, you can go there and count the number of times that woman's hands come up over and over again. She's a worker. I'll stop there. Except to say again, the man gazed at her in silence, verse 21. Heck, yes, he did. Because it's like, I'm not leaning on my own understanding. This is an amazing thing. You want to know God's will, you trust him with all your heart. You don't lean on your own understanding. Now, as the, what happens here, you know, when the camels are done drinking, uh, you know, the servant puts a gold ring on her finger, puts bracelets and stuff on her, and, and, I mean, and then they have a little dialogue uh, Rebecca says, hey, there's room in our place. We can, we can take care of your animals and all of that. And then the servant, when he sees that God has miraculously answered his prayers, he says in verse 27, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who's not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house 
of my master's kinsmen. And then the young woman went and told her household about it. That's the verse, by the way, that I love so much. At this point, there is an interesting character that surfaces, Rebecca's brother Laban in the next verse. Uh, he's a risky rat. We'll have to keep our eye on him. Uh, but that's for another time and another message. I mean, verse 30 will suffice. It says, as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's uh, arms, <laughs> he's all about materialism. And so they bring him in. They put out a spread of food before the servant. He says, I am not going to sit. I won't even sit until you give me an opportunity to tell the reason I'm here. And so they say, speak on. And he does it in verses 34 through 49. It's kind of redundant. It's like reading the story all over again. The servant just blah, tells all what happened, gives the answer to prayer. And we read it, and we think, man, you got to repeat it. That's wasting a lot of scripture, isn't it? This was actually the custom of the day to do this. It was a great custom, and I think it needs to return to our own day. Our guys give me a bad time for repeating stories. My kids give me a bad time for repeating stories. Just the other day, I was telling a story. We were in Chicago, and Abe parachuted in the middle of the story. He said, I've heard that story. I know how it ends. I said, so end it. He didn't remember the story. I didn't finish it. I still haven't told that story. Ah, but the truth of the matter is it's true. I've told a lot of stories over again and such. But this is, I would have fit right into this culture because that's what they did. They didn't have iPads and iPods and tablets and YouTube and everything else we do to memorize and remember stuff. They had their memories, and they did it through repetitions. Remember, remember, remember. It's a good family principle, by the way. Didn't have books as we know them. But one more thing about this servant I want to point out. He never promotes himself. Never. He refers to himself only in reference to the Lord's leading. He's always exalting the name of his master over and over and over again. In all your ways, what? Acknowledge him. Make him known. He is living out the text from Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. In fact, it's so evident by the end of his recounting that Laban, Rebecca's sister, and the rest of the family, it's like, uh, yeah. And in fact, here's what they say. This is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or another. And by the way, if God is leading you, I mean really leading you, you won't have to convince anybody that he is. There are people, and some of you in this room, I've heard say things like, oh, well, you know, I mean, God really led us. And now, like I said earlier, it's like, well, that makes one of us believing it. I mean, I, I, am, I just think it's just a sham sometimes when I hear believers talk about the leading of the Lord and they've cobbled it together on their own. When God really is leading us, it is crystal clear. You won't have to convince anybody. It'll be evident now, in this story, when the servant sees that his prayer has been answered, he offers a praise to God. And he does it with my favorite verse in all of Scripture on experiencing the leading of the Lord. And I give it to you in the New King James. 
because I love the way it's structured there. Here's how the servant put it. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me. Isn't that beautiful? It's really simple, but it's really beautiful. It's really experiential. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me. And this is what I want to do for the balance of our time. Just break this down. As for me. Okay, that's personal. That makes it personal. You and I need to personally experience the living God. We need to understand the principle of, of, of the me factor in Scripture. The psalmist in Psalm 73, he's just completely beside himself. He's lost his focus. He's looking at people. He's looking at rich people. They're living. They're succeeding. They're not sick. They're not dying. And when they do die, it doesn't seem like they're having that bad of a death. And he's, he's, he's losing his faith in the middle of it. And suddenly he goes, I go into the sanctuary of God. Okay, then I, I, got, I, got, I got my act together then. And he concludes that psalm by saying, it's good for me to draw near to God. And if it was good for him, it's good for you. Being led of God is a personal thing. When I talk to people about Jesus, every once in a while they say, they'll say, well, yeah, I know. I believe Jesus died for everyone. I say, look, I don't know about dying for everyone. I know he died for you. If you're going to be saved, you've got to understand he died for you. As many as received him personally, to them God gives the right to become the children of God. It's a personal, the gospel is a personal thing. And by the way, the Apostle Paul never got over the me factor. Remember what he said in the Galatians and to the Galatians? I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Watch this. Who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Paul writing on the me factor. The personal element of the gospel and being led of God. You got to see it as a personal thing. The gospel is personal. We enter into a personal relationship with God through his son Jesus. It never ends. Thank you very much. And he's always with you. He's always with you. As for me, that's personal. But the next one's the harder one. Being on the way. Because that's where we're at right now, right? That's the process. And this is what we struggle with. As for me, being on the way. I mean, that's a 500-mile trek. He'd been praying, wondering, how is this going to happen? This is where all the struggle takes place. The way is the place of struggle. The way is the place of testing. The way is the place of trial and, and bare-knuckled scratching and biting and figuring it out. The way is the place of both failure and victory. Jesus called the way, remember what he called it in one word? Matthew 7? He called it hard. He said it's narrow. The word means to be confined. That's the way that we've been called to walk with God. The process is not always inviting. And we never see the end when we're on the way. Isn't that true? We never see the end when we're on the way. The way is the place of trust. 
That's why the writer of Proverbs says, if I falter, if you falter in the day of adversity, your strength is small. If you're one of these people that capitulates every time the pressure is on, there's something wrong with your faith. It doesn't matter how knowledgeable you are. We got to win the battle on the way. As we struggle to understand God and his, and his ways and his will in our lives, this is the struggle. But if you do, you can say with the servant, as for me, that's personal. Being on the way, that's the process. You can say with them, the Lord led me. And when you can say that, that's, that's the payoff there. That's what that is. For following God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Make him known. And what happens? The payoff? What? He directs your paths. He makes them straight. It's all here with the servant. And by the way, this, what you're looking at here is true both in the bracketed experiences of life. That's right now. I mean, you're, you're thinking about taking on a new job. You're thinking about uh, uh, buying a, a, a home. You're wrestling uh, with what to do in this area or with that area. Uh, there may be a ministry move. I talked to a friend of mine just the other day who called me about this. He says, I'm struggling. God is blessing where I'm at, but I'm sensing the Lord's leading me. How do I know? He's wrestling on the way. Hoping for the Lord to lead. It's true in the bracketed experiences of life as well as the totality of our lives. Where we say, as for me being on the way, the Lord... Uh, led me. If you're following the direction of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 and the example of the servant of Abraham, you will be able to say this in both the experiences, the bracketed experiences, and the t- totality of life. I got to tell you, however, just this morning, I, I go back and forth with pastors and friends around the country. We pray for each other, and, and you know, sometimes we let, we let one another know what we're, um, what we're preaching on. And I, I texted this. I seried it. You know, as for me, being on the way, the Lord led me. And it came out, as for me, being on the way, the Lord let me. And I thought, that's stinking true, too. If you're not trusting the Lord with all of your heart, if you are leaning on your own understanding, if you're not acknowledging him in all of your ways, then God might let us have our way. But then you have another truth that comes into play. Proverbs 22, or, or Proverbs uh, 10, verse 22, where it says, The blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and he, God, adds no sorrow to it. So what happens when you, when you go your own way, sometimes God lets you go your own way and then sows in the sorrow. There's enough sorrow in life as it is than to invite, have, you know, invite God to sow more in it. So... You want the payoff, do you not? Because one day, every believer, if indeed you are one, will enter into heaven with that 2020 vision as you look back. You'll see the courses of life, your right turns and your left, your meanderings and your straight and narrows. You'll see your times of obedience and disobedience, wise decisions and unwise choices. You'll look upon the times where God's gracious hand has been on you 
and sometimes his heavy hand, right? In heaven, you'll look back at all those twists and turns, at the totality of life, and you'll say with C.S. Lewis, the first words that'll come out of your mouth will be, of course. But until then, while you're on the way, William Cooper's words are best when he said, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. God, thank you for the story of Abraham's servant, in search for a wife for Isaac. And thank you for giving us an example in this man of what it means, Lord, to trust you with all of our hearts. Lord, there are people in this room who know about Jesus. They've done studies of Jesus. They believe he's God, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, rose from the dead. But Jesus is not real in their hearts because they've not trusted you. They've not trusted him with all of their heart. I pray for them. If that's you, dear friend, flee to the cross we sung about earlier. And I pray for those who know you, Lord, that they would understand this gospel thing is a throughout life thing. We trust you with all of our hearts all the time. Help us to that end. And to be completely distrustful of ourselves, Lord. Help us to not lean on our own understanding. And give us the willingness and the unashamedness, Lord, to, to, to acknowledge you, to make you known in all of our ways as we trust you to lead us, straighten out our, our paths. Lord, knowing your will can be an elusive thing and surely is to some here. But I pray, Lord, that as a result of the day, your spirit would be working in our hearts so that we could say with the servant of Abraham, as for me, being on the way, you led us. In Jesus' name, let's stand. My wife uh, joins me at the end of every service, and I had to apologize to her because when she walked up, she had a name tag on that identified her as a children's worker. I just ripped it off of her <laughs> because I didn't think she needed to acknowledge herself as a children's worker anymore. She was done doing that. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Don't just... Let it be when we're at church and, you know, the spiritual times of your life. There's never a non-spiritual time. And by the way, I mean, if God spoke in your heart, please let us know. Love to see you over at the Coffee Cove in a few moments. And, and uh, Pastor Kurt's going to be teaching on wisdom from the book of Proverbs tonight at 5 o'clock. Love to see you back for that. But let me tell you how this thing ends, okay? At the end of the story... The family of Rebecca turns to Rebecca and says, Hey, the choice is yours. You want to go? It's like 500 miles, and we're never going to see you again. 
And she says, quote, I will go. And she did go. And she would become the wife of Isaac, the mother of Jacob, the grandmother to 12, the 12 tribes of Israel, and give way to the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The, the new matriarch of Israel she would become. That's a pretty good choice, I'd say. Someone has said, we make our decisions, and then our decisions turn around, and they make us. Choose wisely, dear friends. God bless you. Have a great day.